without any further ado, Ken Wilson. Emily, we can split that applause. Half of that was for you in the announcements and half of that was for me in anticipation of the sermon. This is the Emily Swan conceived series of monsters in the Bible. And Emily assigned to me the topic of giants in the Bible. And I'm like, say what? I haven't even thought about giants in the Bible. You're talking about some of the most embarrassing things in the Bible and you want me to talk about it. Thank you. Emily Swan. Uh, giants occupy a, an interesting position in Scripture. They're, they're somewhere between historical and mythical. And on the mythical end of that spectrum, there's a very strange portion of uh, Scripture in Genesis chapter 6. And I'm going to read it to you. Um, there are many people who said, I'm going to read the Bible from start to finish. And they... They shipwreck on the shoals of Genesis chapter 6, and you'll see why in a moment. And it happened as humankind began to multiply over the earth. So this is after Adam and Eve, this is after Cain and Abel, but before Noah and the flood. Um, it happened that as humankind began to multiply over the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were comely, and they took themselves uh, wives, howsoever they chose. And the Lord said, My breath shall not abide in the human forever, for he is but flesh, let his days be uh, 120 years. The Nephilim were then on the earth, and afterwards as well the sons of God, having come to bed with the daughters of man who bore them children, they are the heroes of yore, the men of renown. Oh, <laughs> so the, the sons of God there seem to be like semi-divine figures and they're, uh, they're somehow associated or equated with the Nephilim, which in Hebrew that means fallen or possibly causing to fall. If it's the latter, it might be more like a bully. Um, then the next portion, after what I just read, is commentary on human violence that is spreading with humankind across the earth, beginning with this sexual violence that was referred to in the text I just portion I just read. The Lord saw the wickedness of humankind, how great it was on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. That's powerful. In the book of Numbers, we see our next appearance of giants. Book of Numbers is about Moses and the people of Israel before they are, they are entering the land of promise, after they've been um, uh, freed from their um, bondage in Egypt. And Moses sends uh, spies into the land of promise before entering the land, the spies come back with a very negative report. goes like this. The land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great size. They're giants. There we saw the Nephilim. There it is again. The Anakites come from the ne Nephilim. Oh. And to ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. 
So this report terrifies the people of Israel. Um, and very interestingly, Moses and Aaron bow down to the people, which is a gesture of submission to their fear. And then two from the up-and-coming generation, Joshua and Caleb, say, don't be afraid, the Lord is with us. Important. The fearful people of Israel, having heard this exhortation not to be afraid, turn on Joshua and Caleb and are ready to pelt them with stones, but they are prevented. So giants in the Bible seem to represent those um, people who, who so frighten us that they seem other than or more than merely human. And we can understand this in, in the 20th century. I, I used to live in the 20th century. Um, there were rulers like Pol Pot in the Cambodian uh, genocide. You had Hitler, you had Stalin, who killed more of his countrymen than Hitler by, by, by millions. Uh, in the 1920s here in the United States, there was a resurgence of anti-immigrant fever. That seems to come in waves every few generations. And the ranks of the Ku Klux Klan, which had been suppressed up to that point, swelled. And that they, they rose up in support of the Jim Crow laws that targeted black people. And this was basically a legalized campaign of terror that included lynchings, even at that time, more than a quarter of the lynchings took place outside of the South, including in Michigan. Um, Saginaw had a lynching, Ingham County had a lynching, and then following that in Michigan you had cross burnings. You had cross burnings in Detroit, a black family would wake up to a cross burning. This happened in uh, Oakland County as well. This happened not far from Milan in, in, in my lifetime, I remember. Um, so this is like a, a, a present-day phenomenon, being terrorized by these kinds of powers. The best-known giant in our focus today in the Bible is Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. So the book of the prophets begins with 1 Samuel. He was like the first um, established prophet in Israel before Israel had a king. And in the story of Goliath, which I'll recount in a minute, Goliath is a kind of is presented as a kind of mirror image um, to the corrupt king Saul. Saul was Israel's first king. He is anointed by the prophet Samuel. Remember reading in 1 Samuel. And Samuel and, and Saul um, was described as head and shoulders above all the other people of Israel at the time. So he's kind of a, a giant himself, but uh, power corrupted Saul. And he goes into rages that were described as being caused by an evil spirit. Um, at that time, David was just a young, the youngest son of Jesse. And David was summoned to soothe Saul's rages with his lyre and his songs, with his guitar playing and his music. So imagine a ruler with no checks or balances on his power falling into rages, and it's your job to calm him, calm him down. Like, take away the man's smartphone, you know. Um, soon, Samuel realizes with this situation that Saul is just bad news. So Samuel, the prophet, withdraws his support 
uh, for Saul. And this introduces a very tense situation in Israel because there's a rupture between the ruler and the prophet who legitimized the ruler. And just a side note, the idea of secular rulers using religious leaders to bolster their power, that's nothing new. Um, uh, religious leaders being duped by secular uh, rulers, using them in this way, is nothing new. It, it, it really, Samuel fell into the same trap. So back to Goliath. So the Philistine army is moving from the coastal plain on the western edge of Israel. So this would be the, like Tel Aviv is there today, further south is the Gaza Strip where the Palestinian people are under occupation. Um, and they're traveling the Philistine army through a region of rolling hills and valleys called the Shefa to attack the cities of Judah, which are on the eastern uh, side of Israel and the mountainous regions of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, or cities in Judah up in the mountains. And the Philistine army is coming um, east to west to um, begin a campaign against these cities. Saul hears of this, the king of Israel, and he brings his army to meet the uh, Philistines in one of the valleys of the uh, Shephelah. The Philistines are camped on the north, northern elevation ridge of the, one of these valleys, and Saul's army is camped on the southern elevated ridge with the valley in between, so it's a, it's a standoff, because neither side wants to relinquish right, the high ground, go into the valley, who wants to make the first move? So the Philistines try to break this deadlock by employing an ancient warfare convention called uh, single combat, where you send out your best you know, warrior and you challenge the other side to send out their best warrior and they go one-on-one -on -one and the best man wins for the whole army. So day after day, I think it is for 40 days, Goliath is going out and he's hurling insults at Saul and his army. Um, this is bully behavior designed to intimidate. And it works. Saul's army is terrified by Goliath, who is, who is um, in, in our you know, measurements, would be eight foot six inches tall. He, he, he's sporting 150 pounds of armor. Um, you know, they say this kind of height differential would be a, a classically a symptom of uh, acromegaly, because they had tumor, a benign tumor pressing on the pituitary gland, so it releases more growth hormone. Um, um, who is it? Uh, Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant, right, in, in Prince's Bride, uh, suffered from um, acromegaly. Meanwhile, um, so this is going on, this intimidation by Goliath day after day. Jesse, who's the father of David, remember, has three sons in Saul's army, so he sends the youngest, David, who had been tending his uh, flock, to the battlefront with provisions um, for David's brothers. When David arrives, you can't believe how terrified everyone is of Goliath. And, and he says so. And when he comments on this, this is very much a reminder of what happened in Numbers with Caleb and, and, um, and Joshua. David's oldest brother tears into David. Why is it you have come down? And with whom have you left that bit of flock in the wilderness? I'm the one who knows your impotence and your wicked impulses. David replies, what have I done now? 
classic brother, you know, interactions going on here. Obviously, David is used to being bullied by all these older brothers. Very clear echoes of Israel being terrified by giants in the land. Young Joshua and Caleb urge courage. Israel's fear morphs into anger at them. Now, when groups are intimidated or terrified by bullies, their fear will often morph into anger toward anyone who challenges the bully. This is all in this uh, psychological dynamic playing out here in the Hebrew Bible. Saul hears of the ruckus between David and his brothers and the men, and, and uh, uh, he summons David, and David says, I'll, I'll take on Goliath, and Saul relents. Saul gives David his own armor. David puts on the armor, but when he tries to walk, um, he staggers, and he can't walk. It's so heavy, and so he says, I can't use this. He takes it off. It's not my style. Instead, he takes his sling, and he picks up five smooth stones, and he walks down into the valley to challenge Goliath. Now, contrary to the fearful assessment of everyone around him, David is not at a disadvantage at all. I mean, he has a different kind of strength than Goliath. This is a strength that is um, cloaked in his vulnerability, you might say. No armor, just young David going up against this eight um, foot six Goliath. Goliath is a heavily armored infantryman designed for combat at close quarters. David is a shepherd, though, who has honed his sling skills to protect his flock, right, from uh, bears and from lions. They, they say at this time that accomplished slingers um, were highly accurate. They could hit birds in flight at a distance with a, with a sling. Uh, uh, they, they were accurate up to 200 yards, these slingers were, and it was different than like, as a kid, maybe you played with a slingshot. No, you didn't do that unless you're a boomer. Okay, boomer. <laughs> slingshot, you know, they had long slings and they whipping it around and they had two cords and they'd release one of them. So they're, they're getting, um, they're, they're going faster than a, much faster than a um, major league pitcher, the speeds. With one shot, David brings down Goliath. You know, we often face people in power, or we face systems that exert power over us or over targeted groups by intimidation, often with a, with a smile and a veneer of civility. And this fear of the bully is amplified in groups of humans by our high capacity to mirror each other's emotional states, especially fear. We're, we're most effective at mirroring each other's fear. And so when dissent arises against the bully, why, why should we fear this bully? Why should we continue to put up with this? The group will often, you know, morph from their fear into anger at any of the dissenters, right? But David has not been immersed in the emotional system of Saul's army because David has been out as a shepherd, out in the fields, alone largely. David is tuned into nature. He's tuned into the ways of sheep. He's tuned into the ways of the, of the uh, predators of sheep, lions and bears, 
tuned in, meaning um, he's been listening, he's been observing what's going on, he's been absorbing the powers of nature around him. And this, these are the skills of meditative practice. Um, David is also a mus musician, so he's credited with many of the Psalms of the Bible. Um, and, you know, people often sing their way through trauma because singing is a form of meditative practice. So that, you know, mod more modern brain research uh, on meditative practice uh, says it activates the calming system of the brain. You do have a calming system, even though you may not know it. <laughs> meditative practice also deactivates the alarm system, particularly the amygdala, which is like the fear and aggression center of the brain. And uh, the research also shows that fear narrows our vision. I mean, literally narrows your vi uh, visual field for a good reason, so that you're focused on the threat. And so you might go into that slow-mo, all of your brain power is like, what's the threat and what can I do to avoid the threat? But meanwhile, you're blinded to the broader visual field. Uh, and this narrowing of focus that cr is created by fear very much constrains our vision and it constrains our creativity in the midst of threat. So David's meditative practices gave him a strategic advantage over Saul's frightened army. He could see what they couldn't and it was actually kind of obvious. Like, oh, this calls for a good slinger and some stones. <laughs> I can do that. See, he didn't have to meet Goliath on Goliath's terms. He could rely on a different set of skills, so he refused Saul's armor. That's what that is all about. Don't rely on, on Goliath's kind of ground. Just rely on your own skills. Two examples I'd give of that in contemporary experience. Uh, Black Lives Matter was founded by three community organizers, three uh, women on the younger side, uh, Alicia Garza, she, she was actually also an activist for transgender rights, uh, Patrice Cullors, who, who identified as uh, queer, Opal Tometi, whose parents were from Nigeria, she grew up in, um, I think, Arizona area. And they had met each other at various conferences and things, and they were searching for some like a more effective response to the devaluation of black lives that be people became more aware of more broadly after George Zimmerman's acquittal for the murder of uh, Trayvon Martin, which now especially with subsequent <laughs> evidence of George Zimmerman, I mean, that was just a, that was a travesty of, uh, of justice. Uh, Garza, Alicia Garza, uh, wrote a Facebook post. Um, it was uh, titled, a, a, a Love Note to Black People. And she wrote, Our Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. That was just part of her post. And, and her colleague, uh, Colors, um, uh, added a hashtag to it, shared it, added the hashtag, Black Lives Matter. And then to Tometi, who also had some you know, online following, added her support. And this just went kind of viral and it unleashed a new wave of activism in the aftermath of black men being killed by 
police, uh, when, often when they're unarmed, seven times, seven times more likely to happen to a black man than a white man. Seven times. Not twice as often, not three times as often, seven times as often. And these three women, um, Alicia, Patrice, and Opal, um, started a movement that, that is, is uh, resonating today and is having an impact. Second example. Um, five years ago, evangelicalism faced its first uh, mini-concerted effort to challenge its homophobic policies. So uh, besides our own Emily, these were mostly men pastors who were involved in this. I, was, I had a little... Uh, role to play Danny Cortez from the Southern Baptist Convention. His son came out as gay. He decided to support his son. That video went, went viral in 2015, I think. Stan Mitchell had his 15 minutes of fame in Nashville, Tennessee. He, he, was, uh, he was a pastor of a thousand and he uh, went affirming and he grew his church to 200. And, and um, Fred Harrell uh, in San Francisco City Church, part of the Reformed Church of America, um, uh, made this transition. David Gushy, the pre preeminent evangelical ethicist, changed his mind, wrote a book. I think that was 2015. But lesser known, in 2012, a youngish single woman in an evangelical charismatic church challenged this Goliath at an evangelical conference. The story's not as well known. She did not have um, evangelicalism's version of Saul's armor. She was not a pastor. She was not a man. Um, she was not a woman married to a powerful man, which in evangelicalism is the way a woman has power. But she had her own advantages. She had overcome her own religiously imposed homophobia and was advocating for herself as a lesbian, she had gifts honed as a researcher. So she was a trained listener, and she was interviewing young lesbian women also who had exposure to evangelical churches. So she faced their suffering and her own under this non-affirming theology, and she got angry at the intimidation tactics of the evangelical power structure, like threats of expulsion, threats of eternal damnation, all of that, psychological warfare of the highest order. A call went out in her denomination for papers for a meeting of, uh, more like a scholarly kind of meeting of this denomination. They had opened it up that year to like the social sciences, I think. But she offered a paper based on her research and somehow she got past the censors. And I was in the room when she made her presentation. It was crackling with tension as she named the harm and she called for an end to these harmful policies. So my late, late wife, Nancy, who was, had been a non-voting member of the board of the denomination, I was the voting member, she was the non-voting member because I had a penis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Nancy understood the hostility in the room despite the kind of Christian veneer of civility, uh, fake Christian niceness, 
And so after uh, the presentation, Nancy positioned herself next to the presenter, kind of like Reggie Love, you know, Obama's body man, um, to make sure that no one would try to uh, any mind games with the presenter in that vulnerable time after you've presented and you're talking with people. That session so threatened the denominational power structure that the pastor of the largest church in the denomination, Rich Nathan, pastors the Columbus Vineyard, 10,000 average attendance, that guy took his 10 minutes response time in, in a later session to a different topic, totally unrelated to LGBT, to defend the traditional policies on LGBT. I was there, someone in the audience sitting with me asked, what's, what's he doing talking about this? I said he's running scared, is what he's doing. That was 2012. In 2014, the aforementioned presenter met Emily Swan. They fell in love. Today they are married. Rachel Murr. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So it was Rachel Murr who fired the shot um, in that historic first shot, the shot heard around the little world of evangelicalism um, that, that, that was part of that internal challenge to the Goliath of evangelical homophobia. You know, I'd say that Goliath may not be defeated, but that Goliath is staggering now. I mean, yeah. the, the, for example, the policies... Um, the harmful policies that are hidden by the, you know, hipster church culture uh, uh, is now being revealed, and it's more and more obvious to more people. More people in these churches are saying, well, we can't support, continue to support this. Like, my kids may be gay, my kids may be gender fluid, and I don't even know it, and I'm exposing them to harm by being in these church systems. Today, there are like 60 to 100 congregations from this sector that have been expelled by evangelicalism, but they've been transformed into fully inclusive, affirming congregations. We're part of that little thing. You know, I hear from evangelical pastors maybe every other week who know these policies are bad, but they are still immersed in the culture of the fear generated by Goliath and they are looking for access to the clarity of Rachel Murr in 2012. So we live in times of multiple Goliaths, generating communities riddled with fear. But we are called to be a community of Davids who learn to like unplug from this vision-constraining fear to understand the strengths that we have and not pine for Saul's armor that doesn't fit us. So may the Spirit grant us enough distance from the fear around us to understand those advantages. And God grant us the faith to embrace our vulnerability like David did, which was David's um, secret superpower. We have our own secret superpower. So um, here ended the sermon. And I would like to, in, instead of leading the meditation myself, I've been part of the meditation class for Advent that Susan King is leading. He does this real good. So um, what Susan has been doing in our class is we start out, we, we 
focus on a different meditative method each um, Sunday, but each Sunday we've been starting off with, I think she calls it a, a grounding exercise, where, where basically it's just, um, uh, she gives verbal prompts and it, it um, leads us to just like um, be aware of our physical presence in our bodies, pay attention to our bodies, and it's, it's a very simple form of meditation that kind of opens up other meditation. So, uh, Susan can come forward and just lead us in that, um, maybe three minutes of that grounding exercise. That would be, that would be awesome. I present to you Susan King. Thank you, Ken. And what a great morning to practice this. So what we're going to do to begin is put your feet on the ground, place your hands in a comfortable position, and close your eyes or leave them open, but totally up to you. We're going to ground ourselves, bring our awareness and our presence to our body so that we can be, have more access to our David energy to face the Goliaths in our world. So let's begin by taking a deep breath down into our bellies, breathing in through our nose, breathing out through our mouth. Do that about three times. Feel free to make sound on the exhale releasing any tension. <coughs> now bring your breath and your focus and your attention down into your feet. Feel your feet touching the ground. Feel your socks and your shoes. Feel your toes your ankles, ball of your foot. And feel, are they warm? Are my feet cold? Are they comfortable? Now rise your attention and your breath up into your lower legs and your calves and your shins. Well, once again, sensing How does the cloth feel against my skin? Are my muscles tense or relaxed? Breathe again and draw your awareness up into your thighs and into your hips. Feel yourself resting against the chair. Draw your energy now up the back of your spine, across your shoulders. Feel how your spine supports your body as it rests on the chair. Breathe into your shoulders and down your arms and into your hands. 
Once again, sensing any tension, relaxing anything you notice. Bring your awareness up the back of your neck into your head, in your face. Feel the air moving through your nose and out your lips. Drawing your breath now down your chest and into your heart space. And connect with the feeling of your heart beating in your chest. Now breathe with your entire body. And when you're ready, open your eyes. Thank you, Susan.